Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's great to be back. Aletha and I were um, gone two weeks on a spring break thing in uh, the Florida Keys. My first time there. Super fun. Never been. Always wanted to drive that highway from Miami to, to Key West, and so we did that. It was, um, it was good. Not quite as good as I was picturing, because <laughs> a little bit, a little run down in parts, but no, it was still really, um, really fun. And um, we learned that there's, uh, they're overrun by iguanas down there. There's no natural predator to iguanas. So we saw one the first day on our pool deck at our, uh, at our house, and we thought, this is amazing. There's, ne- there's iguanas right outside. And then we saw 10 more. And then the second day, it was like, oh, there's an iguana there. You know? So it took one day for it to be not so great anymore. But, um, but it was really fun, and lots of sun, uh, 83, and um, not a flake of snow anywhere in sight. So really, really great. But good to be back. So um, today, guys, we are in the book of Acts, uh, continuing on today in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Um, Today, uh, we're going to look at Peter recounting his trippy vision uh, from last week, if you were here. Uh, So I think it's best today just to read the passage, then summarize uh, and explain it in relation to chapter 10. If if you were here for that, today's kind of a part two. If you weren't, don't worry about it. We'll catch you up to to speed here in a second. Uh, But Acts basically, I will say this though, Acts basically is, if you're brand new to it, the book about the Acts of Jesus after his resurrection. So it starts with his resurrection. It starts with his appearance to many, his disciples and many other people, and the sending, his ascension to heaven, then the sending of the Holy Spirit of God into the hearts of Christians who are the church. The church, biblically speaking and theologically speaking, is not a building. It's a group of gathered Christians. So buildings are just buildings, and, and, and Christians for all, all of history have met in spaces like this or in homes or basements or yards uh, or larger buildings like this, and that's great, but the church is... Uh, definitionally and theologically and, and spiritually, a group of gathered people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and who put their trust in that resurrection, who believe that it's factually true, historically true, and it benefits them. He died for their sins and that he, he rose again. So Acts is the story of Jesus' actions in history that precipitate that, that come before it, that allow for it, and he's breathing his church into existence through his Christians. And so through preaching and evangelism and, and sharing of lives, the gospel is going forth, and more people throughout the Roman Empire are becoming Christians. And churches are being planted to kind of put into order uh, the, the converts and so forth. And we'll see more of that as the book goes on. But church planting is a big part of, of this book as, as well. There's a lot that goes into Acts, though. And we've seen even last week, and we'll, we'll talk about this today, how a lot of it is just this rich kind of um, vision-like theology. So people are talking to God, they're hearing from him, they're preaching the gospel, they're seeing miraculous healings happen. And we're getting theology from things like conversions are happening. We're seeing things like this happen too and getting theology from it. Today, Peter's going to recount this vision he got from God to fellow Jewish Christian believers. All right, so I'm just going to say that to start. There's more to say, but I'm going to read this passage. Uh, if you're brand new to it, it'll feel, it'll feel trippy because it is. It's apocalyptic. It's, it's really cool, uh, but it'll feel a little over your head. But just hang with me. We'll come back and we'll, we'll summarize last week into this week. All right, so let's start with Acts 11, 1 to 18. We'll start in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, or non-Jews, also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. 
Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right, so basically what we're seeing here, uh, not just in this week's passage, but in last week's passage, and I think in this larger section of Acts, is this realization that God always had the nations in mind when he set out to redeem humankind from its sin. Not just the people of Israel. This is a huge thing to understand uh, in terms of redemptive history and what's happening story-wise in the Bible. Israel in the Old Testament before Christ was a microcosm of the human race, a picture or a glimpse. John Piper uh, here in the cities has said this about Israel, which I love. Israel was the historical theater of the conscience of the world. Israel was the Old Testament Israel was the historical theater of the conscience of the world. So that means Israel is meant to be a mirror for you and me to see a picture of ourselves in. That was the plan. Up to Christ. But now on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, on this side of Jesus, things have changed. Access for all has been given for Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews, for people of all tribes, tongues, and nations and cultures. So if it helps, think about it this way as well. So when you think about separation and inclusion in the Old Testament, those themes that Spencer talked a lot about last week, uh, but in Old Testament terms, the former separation of Gentiles from God was a glimpse of how all have been separated from him and exiled from him and banished from him due to their sin. And the former bringing close of Israel partially to God was a picture of how God would one day bring all people close through his son, or open up a way for all types of people to come close to him through his son Jesus. And now that time is here. And so Jesus has come, he has died on the cross, he has risen again. These pictures, these former pictures have ceased, and they have given way now to the reality of the matter. But as we've seen in Acts, the the early Christians who were Jewish, all of them, pretty much all of them at this point, were Jewish, They had trouble understanding this. And so God is intervening. He's granting visions. He's helping his people understand. And so last week in chapter 10, Peter had the the vision proper. Today he recaps the vision to his fellow Jewish Christian apostles and other Jewish brothers, uh, Christians. 
And through it, we learn theology. That's what's happening here in Acts, Acts, the first part of Acts chapter 11. And so is Peter. Peter is actually learning theology here, right? And so I think actually one big picture thing we see in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is this idea that perfect theology is not required for salvation. Perfect theology is not required to be saved, right? There's a hierarchy of what's required to be known and understood in order to be saved. Not all theology is on the same ground. Because Peter understood as a Christian that Jesus died, he rose again, he was God's anointed Messiah and Savior. He came into the world to become human, to advocate for us and heal us and ultimately die for us on that cross. Peter understood that, but he did not understand how, how God would one day bring all nations close. He was still, as a Jewish man, kind of steeped in Old Testament law and tradition the way that things were. He was not yet privy to this stuff. But we see that he was still a Christian. God's not holding that against him, right? He understood the majors, but the minors he was still foggy on. So this is really good news, you guys, for anybody who has ever had a problem with theology or has not understood things perfectly or has disagreed with someone on a minor doctrinal level. This, is, this should liberate us to be learners, liberate us to, under, to, to come to understand, to try to understand things. And, and God is teaching him these things, so it's important to try to understand all things as best as we can, but still like, understand there's a hierarchy of knowledge here. There's things that we bring to people on a major doctrinal level and say, this is, this is the main thing to know about God, the main thing to know about Jesus, the main thing to know about the gospel, and through it, you're saved from your sins. But then be patient with people and ourselves as we come to understand these minor things later. So what I want to do today is just talk more about some of these theological things. And remember, I've been saying this a lot in this series so far, that this is not, Acts is not just history. It's theology. If this was just history, this would be painfully repetitive and not worthy of our meditation. Because we already saw this last week, right? If you were here, maybe you weren't. So this is the first time you're seeing this, then if that's the case. But if you were, if this was just history, this would be unnecessary to delve into. It would just be repetition and we'd skip ahead. But it's not just history. It's theology by way of history, which means there are unique things in this passage as well. And even behind all of that, the fact that it's repeated means emphasis. Hear this again. Understand this same thing from a fresh angle. If you've read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's the same thing. Two creation accounts that complement, but both get at theology in different ways. And they bump up against each other and complement, fit together perfectly like two puzzle pieces. It's kind of like that here as well. And we're not done. In Acts, we're going to see this kind of thing play out um, again, before the book is out, before the book is done. All right, so let's start with three things. So I have three things today. If you want to follow along or kind of look ahead, it's on that sermon insert that you have in your worship folders. But the first thing I think that we see here that Luke is doing is kind of a redux, a Jonah and Genesis uh, redux or a revisitation of uh, some themes from these Old Testament books and figures and events. And so the way that Luke, the author, this is what I mean by this, The way he records this recounting of chapter 10 and chapter 11 is meant to remind us of other places in the Bible and in a way to pull theology from those places right into Acts chapter 11 as if they were happening a second time on a heightened, almost more important level. 
And so we see it in two ways, in a Jonah kind of way and a Genesis kind of way. So let me explain that now, then we'll come back to the reason this is all important. All right, so we see it first in how Peter, in Acts chapter 11, who's actually called, backing up here a little bit in Matthew 16, who's actually called Simon Bar-Jonah. So Peter's also called Simon, Bar means son of, and so he was Simon, son of a man named Jonah. This is Jesus' words for uh, Peter in Matthew 16. So in Acts 11, we see first how Peter, who is called Simon Bar-Jonah, is in the city particularly of Joppa before he is called away by God to go tell a Gentile about the gospel. So Peter, Simon, Bar-Jonah is in Joppa before he goes to tell a non-Jew about the graces of, of Christ. All right, and this is significant because Joppa is where Jonah, the Old Testament prophet Jonah, so different Jonah now, is where Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, hopped on a ship that went to Tarshish, the opposite direction he was called to go by God, which was supposed to be Nineveh, to tell, this is the key, to tell those Gentiles about the graces of God, about the gospel. But he does end up going, if you know the story, by way of spending three days in the belly of a giant sea monster, but that's another story. But basically what we have, uh, by way of comparison, is this. We have two Jonas. We have Jonah, and then we have Peter, who is uh, referenced with a Jonah figure, uh, his dad, in the book. And then we have two Joppas, and we also have two uh, prophesyings or sharings of the gospel or the, or the graces of Christ with particularly Gentile figures. In one case, it's a nation of Gentiles. In the latter case, it is Cornelius, a Gentile man, a singular individual. All right? So hold that thought. We'll come back to that. The second reference here to refer to Genesis now is subtler, uh, but we see it in reference to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. So going back to Acts 11 first, in Acts 11 it says things like this, which by the way is unique to this passage uh, when we compare it to last week's. These are added things that Luke the author and and Peter himself is kind of recounting here, but the author is, is bringing in. In Acts 11 it says, he, this is God speaking about Peter. He's, he's saying, he, Peter, will declare a message by which you will be saved. So when the man Cornelius is kind of recounting this as well, and Peter's sharing the story, he will declare a message to you. By that message, through the message, you will be saved. And then moving on, he says, as I began to speak, not until I began to speak did the Holy Spirit come on people. Not until the words of sharing how Jesus lived and how he died, how he rose again. When I said those words and when they were actively clung to, the Holy Spirit came upon these people and they were saved. All right, so we see that the prominence of words associated with salvation. And here's the thing. It's the same in Genesis. All right, so in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, at the beginning... It's clear that when God says things, when he speaks, things are created. And it's clear that the Holy Spirit falls upon chaos and brings order. So, again, by way of a chart here, basically what we're seeing is that the Bible is a tale of two creations. It's actually quite clear on this, more clear elsewhere. Here it's more subtle. But we see two creations, a Genesis 1, first physical creation, and an Acts 11 Second creation that's more spiritual. With the first creation, we see words precede light and created matter. In Acts 11, we see that words, or particularly the word of Jesus, precedes and accompanies created spiritual matter or salvation. 
We also see the Spirit granting order to chaos, hovering over the chaotic seas. In Acts 11, we see that the Spirit grants order to spiritual chaos, falling on chaotic sinners like, like Cornelius and bringing salvific order to their souls and bodies. All right, here's why all this is important. That's a quick buggy ride through those things. We could spend all day on that. But here's why this is important. Remember, the point here is to pull theology from those former stories. This is what Luke's doing, the author, what God is, is intending in order to, in, in, when he's kind of allowing the story to occur this way and to be written down in this manner by the pen of Luke. The point here is to pull theology from elsewhere in the Bible to inform our understanding of the gospel and what we're presently reading. As if, again, they're happening a second time, creation's happening a second time, the story of Jonah's happening a second time on a heightened, more important manner. So pay attention. Repetition's important, as we already said today. That's the author's point, that's God's point. So the question is, where's the theology in these connections or reduxes? All right, so let's start with Jonah. To pull from Jonah first, here's what we're seeing. Especially if you know the story of Jonah, it helps. But if you don't, that's okay. But what we're seeing is the themes of Jonah play out, again, in Acts chapter 11 and and, in surrounding context. So what we're seeing, again, is the theme of a God who pursues us, like we just sang about. This is the God of the Bible on repeat. He pursues, he chases, and undeservedly so. He loves I mean, don't miss how incredibly involved God is in saving us in the book of Acts. Isn't it amazing how time and time again we've seen God, painfully is the wrong word, but I can't think of a better one. So almost painfully in a good way, involved in the the conversion narratives and stories of individuals in the book of Acts. He's specifically, individually pursuing, chasing down when people aren't even really looking for him. Think of Saul. Think of the eunuch. Right? Think of Cornelius, and there are others as well, and there will be many more before the book is out. This is what God is like. This is the big picture, but we're, but we're seeing this. We see it in Jonah. We see it in Acts 11. We see it everywhere in between. God is a pursuer of lost people. And today, that's true as well. Right now in this very room, th- th- this is what God is like. Right now in this very room and in our very lives, whether you're a Christian or not, God is a pursuer. He is pursuing. He has pursued. He will pursue. He loves you on this high pursuit kind of level. All right, or or to use another Acts 11 phrase for it, the gospel is the good news of the inclusion of sinners for all people who call upon him. So it's for male and female. It's for learned and simple. It's for those kind of seeking for him and for those not seeking for him at all. It's for kings and servants. The gospel is for murderers and humanitarians. The gospel is for the moral and for the immoral. Because in Jonah, you have this story of a Hebrew religious spiritual prophet who talked with God. And you have this story of an atrociously wicked, murderous nation of people in the the Ninevites And the story is, both of them need saving. Not just the Ninevites, Jonah needs saving as well. Good people need saving and bad people need saving. Because in Christ, there is no good and bad. In Jesus, in the Christian worldview, there is no good and bad. There's just Christians and not. There's people who are saved and those who are yet to be. 
We're not saved by what we do. See, Jonah, a man who talked with God, didn't understand. He needed to be pursued as well. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of us. And in every state of life, we need to be pursued and saved because we're saved by grace, not by what we do. This is a huge part of Jonah, huge part of Acts 11. All right, then to pull from Genesis, more to say, but here to pull from Genesis as well, what we're seeing is, again, the theme of creation by word. God spoke in the beginning, and now he speaks again through his church. God says uh, to Peter, I want you to speak to Cornelius, and it's by the message that he will be saved. Again, isn't that fascinating? It's by the message. This this is um, a huge endorsement for preaching and evangelism and reading our Bibles and talking with friends audibly about the gospel and about Jesus and encouragement and counseling, word-based ministry. It's by the words, by the speaking, by the message. And it wasn't until Peter spoke that the Holy Spirit came upon this individual. And, and so it's, it's important because it puts the onus for salvation strictly on God's shoulders. God is not a silent God waiting for us to figure it out or to be good enough but a God who calls into tombs and says, come to life. That's what he's like. God is not silent. That song we sang earlier said, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. See, this is the Christian worldview. God's not silent waiting for us to figure it out and to be good enough. He's actively speaking into the the tombs of our souls and hearts and lives and saying, rise up, get up, be alive. And so here we're seeing that when God says this, it's critical to understand that it's by the message, not by our works, but by the message and by his active choice to speak that we are saved. This is a grace idea over and against our moral effort idea. It's by the message. Other religions flip this, but not Christianity. It's by God actively speaking. Until he does speak through other people, there's no way we're saved. No way. All of us in the room who are Christians were saved because of a word. Whether we read it alone or whether a missionary, a pastor, a friend, a parent, a peer, someone said this is what Jesus is like. This is who he was. This is what he said. This is what he did. And he loves you. Do you believe it? There's no exceptions. No one becomes a Christian outside of that methodology, that that way of, of, of doing mission and ministry. And it's by grace then we're saved, not by works. All right, that's the first piece to this. Uh, the second uh, angle I want to look at is beasts and reptiles, again, or unclean animals. Spence talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to go into too much depth, but I'm going to repeat it because a lot of you weren't here for it. Uh, there's a couple of things here. So if the question is why this imagery, so why is Peter seeing a sheet with four corners being let down and all these crazy animals are on it? They're all unclean, if you didn't know that. They're, in other words, they were, um, they were untouchable, un- unedible. They, they were things that... that Kosher food laws were a thing to reflect the fact that the Jews were separated from the nations. And so that's the first piece is when we ask the question, why this imagery? It is a picture of other types of people being brought in. All right, so again, Spence talked a lot about this, but in the Old Testament, this is the big thing to get, and when you get this, it actually makes a lot more sense. So in the Old Testament before Christ, different types of animals represented different types of people. So 
Whereas before, before Christ in the Old Testament, certain types of animals were off limits for eating, and through that, undergirded and physically showed how God had separated Israel from the nations. So as he was separating foods, he was separating peoples. So he drew out Israel from the nations for a time. But now Peter's seeing things have changed on this side of Christ. And we're seeing this very liberal inclusivity of people happening here. To the point where Peter says, really them? You're including them? It's also important to see that God, I think, uses food to help convey this idea. This is a little bit of a bunny trail, but it, it, it does relate. Uh, the, the, the issue here is how the image of food in Peter's hunger helps us to understand the gospel. Because remember, all this is happening when Peter has hunger pains. He's like, I'm really hungry. And it's in that moment when he's praying that he sees, that he sees this sheet come down with different types of food on it. He says, no, God, I'm not going to eat unclean things. And God says, no, you should. I'm calling them clean. And, and it goes on, goes on from there. But what this is telling us, I think, is it's as if God is saying salvation is like saying yes to all kinds of food. Christian salvation is like saying yes to all kinds of food. It's more like feasting than fasting. It's receiving, not abstaining, because we believe as Christians, Jesus has done all of the abstaining for us when he died for our sins. When he fasted through his death and shed his blood for our transgression and sin and rebellion against our creator. God never commands fasting in the New Testament. He never commands it. It's talked about, so it's not wrong to do on an individual level. And I realize I'm saying this during Lent, so some of you might be in the middle of a fast, but, uh, but here we are. So it's not, but it's not commanded because it's not central. You never have to fast the rest of your life from food because um, Christianity is more about eating than it is abstaining. Now, again, it's not wrong to do that because it is talked about, and, but it's just not the center of the faith. God does not say through Jesus, harm yourselves religiously for my sake, but he says instead, like he is here to Peter, receive or eat my son's body and drink his blood and you will be saved through, by way of John 6, which I'll come back to you later. And so the liberalness of food associates with the liberalness of who now can access God through Jesus. And so God loves doing this. It might seem like, dude, how do those things relate? That seems like apples and oranges. But they actually do relate to the point where if we're eating food and enjoying all kinds of food and remembering that Christianity is not about a faddish diet, but it's about receiving it and enjoying being thankful for the food that God gives us, it can remind us before a very diverse plate of food at some particular occasion or holiday that all kinds of people now, even me, can access God because of what he's done through Jesus Christ. So that's the first piece. The second thing you hear is that it's not just a, going back to the, the question, why this imagery? This is uh, not just a picture of sinners being brought in, though it is that, we just talked about that. It's specifically about sinners being made clean. This reminded me of uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go back to that, but just to say in Daniel 4, uh, if you guys have read this before, in his pride, the king, he was humbled by God and he was turned into an animal. You guys remember this story? Some of you have read this before. Where it says his body was wet with dew, his hair grew as long as eagles, feathers, his nails were like bird claws, he ate grass like an ox, super gross. But he was in that state for a while and then God reversed it by grace and it's a, kind of a cool thing actually because he's converted it seems and he worships God. But lots to say about it, but know how well this fits with Acts 11. The co-themes of our sinfulness 
and unclean animals go together. The co-themes of our sinfulness and unclean animals go together. And if you're here last week, uh, no, sorry, not last week, a few weeks ago, for this, remember how we talked about how the importance of when Saul in Acts 9, when he's healed of his blindness by Ananias, how something like scales fell from his eyes? You guys remember that? Have you read this before? Something like scales fell from his eyes? See, reptile-like and snake-like and devil-like, really, language has already been used in Acts in association with sinners like us. And so this is what the Bible is saying, kind of by way of Daniel 4 and also Acts 9 and also here in Acts 11. It's not about animals, it's about us being the animals. So Nebuchadnezzar kind of becomes like an unclean beast. And, and it, says about, it says about Saul that he was snake-like. He was like a son of snakes, a son of serpents, a son of dragons, like a son of the devil, like all of us before we're saved. And this is how it starts to matter to us because up to this point, it might just be information. But this is how it starts to matter. We're the unclean reptiles and devils on the sheet. We're the ones being treated delicately by God and all of a sudden declared clean by him because of what Jesus did for us. See, the gospel is not about adjusting us 10 degrees morally. It's about wholesale recreation. We need someone literally to transform us from one state to another. The equivalent of a dog being transformed into a human being in an instant. That's what we need. Will a little bit of law, a little bit of moral adjustment do that? When you, got, when you dog owners like have a dog obey you, do they turn into a human being? I mean, no, obviously, right? What we need is someone to actually literally transform us from one state to another. And we have that. In Christ, we are Christians being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And transformation like this cannot come by way of slight behavior modification, but only by a way of recreation and salvation, or as Jesus says, rebirth. We need the Holy Spirit, not a few laws to keep. And so I'm saying this to those of you who are Christians to remind you, but if you're not yet, this is, why we talk, this is why we Christians talk so heavily about Jesus' death and resurrection because that, and, and, and the reception of the Holy Spirit of God into our lives. We're more about that than we are moralism because we know we're dead. We know we're a reptile. We know we're unclean. We know we're banished. We know we're exiled. We know we can't access God. And the Old Testament laws never brought people close. The laws of the Bible keep people away. Whenever God says do something, it makes the problem worse. And so, and that was by design. When God came into history through his son, it wasn't do something, it was watch me do something. And that's when he died on the cross for our sins. It was a complete flip. It was a, it was a change. It was a, a reordering. It was a New Testament. Different from the Old Testament. A New Testament. A new covenant. A new way of God working. That was foreshadowed and looked ahead to, but, but still markedly new. All right, and that leads us into this last piece here I want to look at today, the third and final piece is Peter saying, who is I that I could stand in God's way? All right, and let me ask you a rhetorical question off of this just to start. Those of you who know a little bit about Peter, or maybe a lot bit, why was this such a significant thing for Peter, of all people, to say? Why should this almost shock us to hear Peter saying this? 
And the answer has to do with remembering how earlier in the story, he did everything he could to get in God's way. Everything he could on multiple occasions. Specifically when he tried to prevent Jesus from dying on the cross for our sins. All right, so really quick, four quick things here. I'll just read through them that share, these are the big ones, there's other ones, but the big ones that Peter, where Peter tries to get in the way of God saving us from our sins. All right, look at what's happening here. It's, it's amazing, it's terrible, but it's awesome. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So first mistake. But then he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You shall never die. On my watch, don't worry, I've got you. You'll never die. But he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay, so um, this tells you how, how off Peter is and how important it is that Jesus die. Right? And how, how whacked Peter's theology is. It's satanic. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus loves Peter to death, literally. He loves Peter. He's saying, you need to hear that your theology is satanic. Not a little bit off. Satanic. All right, John 13, 8. When Jesus is watching his disciples' feet, Peter said, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. All right, so, so, so same kind of thing. I should wash your feet, he's saying. But Jesus is saying, no, if you don't let me wash your feet, you understand nothing about me, and you can't be saved. You can't enter my kingdom. You have no share or portion with me. A little bit later on, thinking that maybe Peter got it there. He didn't. A few verses later, uh, Peter said to him, Lord, I will lay my life down for you. I have good news for you. Jesus answered, really, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And then in John 18, trying to prevent Jesus' arrest, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. All right? The Bible is... uh, this beautiful but terrible story about how we try time and time again to get in the way of grace and to stop it from doing its thing. It's a story about us seeing grace as a problem when in fact it's the only thing that can save us. It's about us saying, no, 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 God, we don't need you to die for us. Let us show you how great we are, how strong we are, how worthy we are, how servant-hearted we are how generous we are, how morally good we are. Let us show you. Let us help you. In fact, as Peter said, let us even die for you. And this is, by the way, what other religions would say to their followers, you die for your God. Show him, show him that you, you mean it when you believe in him by shedding your blood and dying for him. Christianity flips that. It says, bask in the fact that your God died for you in the most terrible of manners, in love. But all along, Jesus stays resolved. He rebukes this mindset I just kind of outlined as satanic. 
and he marches to the cross to die for us, to wash our feet there, and to save us from our sins. To show us it's by God's grace we're saved, not by being good. So here's the thing. Now in Acts 11, Peter, the Peter of Acts 11 has matured. He is a changed man. He has been humbled. He has come to understand all of this. He submits to the work of God rather than tries to replace it with his own ideas or a moral effort. He has less trouble with the idea that God saves the undeserving and the unclean, probably because he has grown to see himself as unclean. So how could he, how could he stand in the way of other people entering when he's just as bad or worse as they? Acts 11 helps us understand what it means to grow spiritually. This is what it means to mature. It's to become a person of grace. It's to become a person of the blood of Jesus. To understand the gospel better. That's what it means to mature. To not make promises to God that we see Peter try to do in the gospels, but to receive God's promise to save us. God vows to save us. This is what Christians believe. We don't, try to, we don't make vows to God like, I promise I'll always believe in you. I promise I'll do this for you. I promise I'll move to wherever for you. If you just like heal me of my diseases, I'll, I'll move to wherever and be a missionary for you. That's just stupid. Don't ever do that. You probably won't ever do it anyway, but even if you do, that's not what Christianity is. It's every day wherever you are believing that he said, I promise, I swear on my own name that I will bless you and save you if you call upon me to be saved. I swear on my own name because there's nothing higher than him to swear by. Hebrews 6 says, so I swear by my own name, I will save you if you just simply say, God, save me a wretch. Save me a sinner. If you come broken to him, he swears to save you eternally from death, from sin, from the devil's grasp, from your own hard heart, from your doubts, your fears, your shame. Peter understands this. He's changed. It's really cool to see. And we can change too by God's grace. And Jesus, interestingly here, who's the focus, he shows up in this passage in an unsuspecting way at the end. I, I want to I give Jesus the final word. He is in every word of this passage, this, every sermon, or he should be, if they're good Christian sermons, he should be, uh, but every word of every sermon, every word of the Bible, he, he's always the word, but still, I want to give Jesus the final word here and point us back to one more thing. Listen, first of all, to what he says in John 6. I referred to this earlier, but listen to what Jesus teaches. This is before he dies in one of the gospel accounts of the New Testament. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of me, the Son of Man, and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Unless you do that, and he's speaking metaphorically, of course, but this is why many people in the Roman world of the first century thought that Christians were cannibals, because they talked so much about this stuff, they didn't understand. But speaking metaphorically, but still very really, unless you, you so much cling to my death for you, that you're nourishing yourself on it and not yourselves and not your moral performance, not the law, not any other kind of God, good or bad, but just him and what he does for you, you have no life in you. And again, in Matthew 16, 
I must be killed. Killed being the key word. And here's a question for you. Where have we seen some of these words today in Acts 11? Where have some of these words come up in yellow here? Where have we seen them play out? In Acts 10, in Peter's vision, and in Acts 11. See, this is the higher spiritual meaning behind the vision. Which, by the way, the vision itself clearly has a heavenly and spiritual component to it rather than just a straightforward horizontal human teaching, right? It's almost apocalyptic in nature, kind of like Revelation or the the book of Zechariah or the second half of Daniel. It's almost apocalyptic, which should clue us on to something, even just by way of genre, that the vision is not ultimately about us. And here's what I mean. Jesus was truly the one lowered from heaven, like the sheet and the animals in Peter's vision. Jesus was truly the one who offered himself as heavenly food, saying, eat my flesh, just like God invited Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And so he was truly the one whose death was associated with nourishment. But there's a twist in that, of course, and the twist is, if that's true, if really we're just seeing Jesus on the sheet as well and not just us, is that this means that Jesus became like an unclean animal for us on the cross. When he died, he was, quote, an abomination. Those are his words for it before he died. And that word abomination is a word used to refer to unclean foods in the Old Testament. Even though this is good kind of basic Christian theology here, we're just using kind of fancy terminology for it, even though he was the clean lamb of God, He became like an unclean reptile so that in him we might be made clean ourselves. So to to, to use more straightforward language, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made clean. We might be justified. So see, this is really where the vision becomes, truly becomes gospel. It's not, going back to last week too and and into this week, it's not, the gospel is not just that God makes a way for far off, unclean sinners like us to be brought in and cleansed. But here's the gospel. The gospel is the way he did it. All the benefits, all the things from the Jonah and Genesis redux, all the things about God pursuing lost people, all the things about him creating by word that being a grace-filled thing, all the things about him making a way for for Gentiles, people from all nations and, and the, the snake-like, scale-like state of our human souls, all the stuff we talked about this week and Spence did last week, all of that, the way that he did all of it, the way that he brought those benefits in, into history in our lives was by himself being lowered, himself being associated with vultures, beasts, and snakes, which happens in the Gospels, vultures, beasts, and snakes, which are unclean animals, and himself being killed for you and me that we might be nourished by his love and grace. That's the way he did it. That's what Acts 11 is all about. Peter wasn't just seeing a picture of Gentiles on the sheet. He was seeing a picture of Jesus, the true one who was lowered from heaven, the true one who we have to eat of, the true one who became stained and unclean so we might become unclean. A Jesus who gave himself for heavenly food. And so, if that's the case, guys, and it is, 
the invitation of Acts 11, there's a lot of things going on here. But the ultimate invitation is to rise and eat of the food of Christ. Eat of his flesh. Drink his blood. Nourish yourself on the fact that he died for you. And if you're a Christian, you think, I've already done that. Great. Praise God for that because he must have caused that in your heart. That's why he's done it. But do it again. He's bread every day. Every day. His blood is, is balm for your souls every day. The only way to become clean is to shower yourself in it. Eat the fact that Jesus died for your sins. Take communion during these last couple songs we sing. Eat the fact that it's by your grace alone you can be saved. But the invitation, remember, is nourishment. This is what God is saying to us in this room. Rise, get up, walk away, repent, walk away from your sins and your old life. Rise and come to the table of God and partake of Jesus' body and drink of his blood. Look at the man on the cross and say, how much must God have loved me if he did not withhold his one and only son but gave him up to go there so we wouldn't have to. The one lowered from heaven, the one killed, and the one who offered himself for our souls. Not laws, not commandments, but he offered his body so that it's by the word, by the message by the word that we're saved, not by anything else, including the best of things. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for last week's as well. Thank you that uh, we have such a substantive look into uh, such rich theology from Old and New Testaments um, pertaining to food and sheets and animals and cleanliness laws and people and prophets and creation accounts and all kinds of things coming to a head now in Jesus who fulfills all of them. Jesus, save us. Make us new. Father, I pray for myself and everyone here, wherever they are spiritually, that the gospel would become sweet, that we would see at least a God who is intimately and intentionally involved in our conversion narratives, just like Cornelius is. Intimately involved. Wanting us to be saved by name. Not silent, but speaking over our and singing over our dead corpses that we might come to life. Jesus, thank you that you didn't come to be a teacher primarily, but one to become like a, a snake or a vulture or a wild beast on that cross. You, you took on all of our sin, all of our uncleanness, so we could become clean. You, you were a classic, classic textbook substitute. That's what the gospel is, and we need that. We don't need someone to tell us how great we are. The world's doing great at that, and they're lying. We need someone to tell us that we need to be loved. And we are. And, and we've been loved to hell and back. Praise be to God that our God has done that even. Help us to believe, and through that belief, to be saved. Amen.